So, hello everyone and welcome to a new edition of In Conversation With. Uh, today, we're talking to Gary Needham. And I really wanted to talk about Gary because uh, uh, Gary contacted me about his response to all of us strangers, which he'll tell us about in a moment. And I thought it was great to see this connection to this film. And it's a film that a lot of different kinds of people from many different places are connecting to, but that it has a very particular resonance to queer people, queer people of a certain generation, and even more so British queer people of a certain generation. So Gary, can we begin there? What was your response to the film? Well, the first thing I realized was that to borrow actually a title of another British text, Michaela Cole's TV series, I May Destroy You. Uh-huh. This film was very much something that caught me off guard. And I haven't been caught off guard before. For a very, very long time by a movie. I mean, obviously, we've all cried at movie and TV shows, and those are usually because they're really good melodrama and they're really good at using conventions to get the tears out of us or they're empathetic. But I didn't do so much crying at the start through the movie. There was a few moments, but over the process of the week, after the movie, I felt devastated. I felt sad. I felt grief. I felt I was bursting into tears in these moments. And I was like, what the hell has this movie done to me? And I was hearing more and more from people, usually gay men in their 40s and 50s, and we started having conversations and social media, and a lot of us were having the same sort of affective response of being devastated by this movie. And it takes us back to 1987. And it takes us back to a particular time in which the world was hostile, if you were a young gay kid, a gay teenager, uh, particularly in the UK. And it rem- and, and the first thing that came to mind was, oh my God, that school report of mine from 1987. And in the movie 1987 is when the, his, the sort of flashbacks or the ghostly encounters occur. And my school report says... Gary is a conscientious worker, which is like, okay, he's going to become an academic. Mm-hmm. But Gary is a loner and has difficulty making friends. And when I look back at that, it was so much in that single sentence, Gary is a loner and has difficult making friends, was so resonant. And why that's important, I think, in 1987, I was 13. And 
we had section 28. I think it was on the horizon. I can never precisely date it. Of course, we have the AIDS crisis. So you're 13, you're being told uh, you'll be sick, you'll die, you'll be lonely. The government is trying its best to erase gay life, gay people, gay communities through section or clause 28. I should also add that one of our lifelines and one of the privileges of some of our generation was that we had television sets in our bedroom and we had Channel 4 and Channel 4 resisted all of this by programming films like Parting Glances. Mm. Maybe it programmed too much Derek Jarman, mm. but that's another story. And so I came of age in 1987. I loved the Pet Shop Boys, but I also loved Nine Inch Nails. And eventually, as I'm getting to sort of 16, 17, and that's like 90, 91, 92, still, still sex scared the shit out of us because of AIDS. Before the internet, we had no access to information. So you really did think if I have sex, I could die. Sex is a dangerous thing. Um, and I ended up becoming very invested in body modification and tattooing. Mm. And a lot of the people that know me, I'm a heavily tattooed uh, person. And, and I can pinpoint that a significant number of things happened to me after 1987. And this will become important in a minute. I discovered John Waters' films because Channel 4 was great. But it was Derek Jarman and it was My Beautiful Laundrette and it was out on Tuesday. Mm. It wasn't Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. And when I saw those movies when I was like 16, maybe even younger, I was like, that's the queer I want to be. Mm. Not the Derek Jarman type. And then we get this new, these new films keep coming out and one of them is behind me. The poster, uh -huh. The Living End. So, of course, I come out at a time when activism, rebellion, anger, fury, you know, and we had a word for it, which was queer. We weren't gay, we were queer. And what seems to me to have happened is we immediately leaped from this hostile 1987, bullied at school for being effeminate, government hates us, the world's telling us we're lonely and we'll die, and all these texts and things appear. And I would include in that also performance art. Ron Athey was a huge influence on me as a young man a young queer man, and it was anger, fury, rebellion, queer, to quote that thing, not gay as unhappy, but queer as in fuck you. And that was the kind of coming of age moment of my life. It was Bruce the Bruce films. Mm. And then, you know, from there, becoming an undergraduate, 
discovering queer theory and building almost a career and a body that re- that that embodies rebellion, embodies queerness, you know, the Toma Finland tattoos, the symbols from Physique Pictorial that are there, the coded symbols for all the trade signs of what kind of trade you wear. So I really was a fuck you queer. And I've lived a lot of my life like that. And a lot of my academic work has been about difficult stuff, angry stuff. And and I'm doing a lot of work now on AIDS. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this movie comes along. And it's like, ha, you thought you had dealt with that. You thought your rebellion was your way out. But actually, that this I'm here to tell you that behind all your hardness and your queerness and your rebellion, you're actually still a little broken boy. Mm. And you are someone who hasn't had the time to actually really negotiate and process the grief of the 80s that the 80s stole our childhood that's what Andrew Haig actually says this film is for the queer kids who never got to have a childhood and what do you think he means by that and 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 also what do you personally understand by that because I, I do think it's not just an experience of someone your age. I mean, I'm 10 years older than you, which is, which means I'm almost a generation. I am the AIDS generation. Yeah, I was somebody who had a year or two before AIDS, but then really, you know, I was 18 in, in 1980. Yeah, 1982, I was 20, right? So, which is kind of when it all crashed down. And yet I have quite a different experience from yours. Uh, I, you know, I, I I loved being gay, loved coming out, you know, into a protest on love and community and all of those things. I mean, the anger bit kind of really came later. Yeah. Though, you know, I also had experiences of the police going into gay bars in their uniform just to piss you off and terrorize you, right? Like that was, those things were not contradictory. Um, but but I think it's a generational difference, and yet that experience that the film conveys of that loneliness, yeah, of a child who's living through something that they have to live through alone because they can't speak to with anyone else, yeah, and are unprotected and vulnerable, yeah, which I t- I is what I understood to be being robbed of a, of a childhood. Yeah. Um, that was also my experience. I imagine many previous generations experience and something that I probably share with you, even though, yeah, the, the, the coming of age timeline is quite different. But what do you understand uh, 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 by what Haig means and also how this connects to you personally? Yeah, I think every generation has a different response to the movie, but the shared one seems to always take us back to that experience of being 
a child who knows they're different. And yeah, Andrew Hay says his childhood was robbed and the, the, the dialogue in the film is things his mother said to him. Mm. My situation was rather different that my parents divorced in 1981 and I was actually raised by my grandparents who loved me. I never had to come out. Mm. And so I actually don't have a coming out story or anything like that. Mm. Um, but it's it feels like childhood was, people talk about, you know, schools being the des best day their lives for us queer kids they were some of the worst years of our lives and of course in in school whether this is you know wherever it is in the world whether it's the uk or the us homophobic slurs are thrown about like confetti mm. everyone in my school was called a poof mm. and i'm sure everyone in the US was called a fag. Mm. And the problem is, of course, that you know you're a poof. And you think, how do they know that? Because this is the deepest, darkest secret that I hold, and I don't even know what I'm doing with that knowledge. What do they see? How do they see it? You take that insult as almost an insight into your very being and your very soul. It is really when a hateful word becomes an injury mm. and leaves a scar. And the film kind of takes the plaster off of that scar and exposes it a little bit and makes us reflect on it. And I do feel a huge part of my childhood is missing. I actually can't remember it because I think it has been blocked out mm. to protect me on a deeper level. And it's what produces us in as paranoia, you know? How do they know we're gay? Mm. And I think if you're a regular little straight boy at school and someone calls you a poof, and you know you're not one, you're just like, oh, fuck off. Mm. doesn't affect you. But it affected us so greatly. And when this is also being upheld by the whole social system and the whole politics of whether it's Thatcher or whether it's Reagan, is that, you know, the whole conservative moralistic turn in the 1980s, just any any kind of difference and any attempt to politicize differences is continually being um suppressed, repressed, fought against. And being gay felt so difficult, and being gay at school felt the most difficult of all. And there weren't weren't mechanisms in place to 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 go to people, to raise to people. And I see now that there are, and I have nieces, I have a niece who's a dyke and was a dyke at school and could hold hands with her. And that brought me so much joy because when we were at school, we had to deal with a lot of pain. And that's why the Pet Shop Boys song, mm -hmm. I think, and the other pop songs in the film 
feel so important because pop music, even though Erasure, the Pet Shop Boys, Soft Cell, they weren't like saying, I'm gay, we're a gay band. You knew. Everyone knew. <laughs> Everyone knew. It was the like open secret. Yeah. And I've listened to the Pet Shop Boys since they began and and you know only now do I actually hear the lyrics mm. it always on my mind maybe I didn't hold you quite as often as I should mm. and many of us were little boys and little girls went back to our bedrooms after school and cried and parents might have come in and said are you okay son are you okay daughter what's wrong mm. for a lot of us that didn't happen. And that's what the film says, right? So kind of, the, I think there are two, uh, well, three bits of dialogue in the film um, that that dramatize precisely this, you know, the, the boy going, al- or, or the Andrew Scott character going to his room to cry as a boy. The father knowing what he was crying about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and saying something like, you know, if I'd have been in school with you, I would have bullied you also, he says. And then, of course, that moment of reconciliation and regret at the end where he says, I should have gone into your room. Yeah. I think, you know, the, I found that like devastating, really. Yeah. Kind of it's yeah. where you just well up, you know, because it, 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 it is precisely that. It is kind of, it is dramatizing you know, the abuse that's structural, that's familial, the thing about knowledge is the knowing, not knowing, when in fact there is a knowing, you know, the hiding of the secret, the boy's solitude in the face of all of this. And then that moment of learning where he then says that when he went to his, to live with his grandmother, he didn't suffer from that anymore because he'd learned how to project differently i he'd learned how to create a closet around himself i mean i thought that was like kind of beautiful because it's just little moments of dialogue but that seem to dramatize the whole structure of feeling yeah i mean and i think that's why the pop music's so important in the film it's not just a soundtrack it was a lifeline it was it was ah don't i now realize I mean, the the song that's kind of, for me, if I was making the movie, the song for me is Bronski Beats, Small Town Boy. For me as well. But that is five years earlier, isn't it's it? It's five years earlier. Jimmy Somerville is, and uh, Bronski, they're making a point. They, they are a political band and they are, their why is about homophobia and Small Town Boy is about why your parents will never understand why you had to leave home. Mm-hmm. The Pet Shop Boys obviously see themselves as slightly more sophisticated and less direct. Um, but and it takes and it took Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe many years and many reissues and liner notes mm-hmm. for them to then go back and say, yeah, that song was actually about. AIDS mm. or that was song was actually about George Michael. Um but there's something in pop and a particular kind of pop that resonates. Mm. And 
it's it's very hard to find, and I still find it's very hard academically to articulate without you sounding like an essentialist. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain sound that gets into your queer DNA mm -hmm. and it feels like, I think someone once wrote that disco is our roots music, um, but there's something about the texture of pop and the men that sing it and the lyrics that are ambiguous that it was solace. Mm. So while we're talking about, you know, being the little boy who goes home and goes to his bedroom and cries, he's also the little boy who went home and put on Left to My Own Devices at sure. full blast. And my grandmother's like, turn it down. And finding the joy and release in music. And the film uses music in that way. It's both an index of pathos and loss and melancholy, but it's also an uplift. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the film ends on Frankie Goes to Hollywood's The Power of Love, which wasn't was never one of my mm -hmm. tracks, or I was never a Frankie fan. Mm -hmm. I was much more of an erasure. Pet Shop Boys uh, guy. Yeah, I, I did like, but my uh, track was really relaxed. <laughs> yeah, uh, which had. Um, I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was, a, I was, just, so that I think relax is like 1983, 1984. So I was like 10. We knew it was naughty. Mm. But we didn't quite know why it was naughty and why the BBC banned it and why they hated it. Um, but then at the same time, there was so much queerness on top of the pop, so you couldn't talk about sex, but you could look, as they would have said back then, like a gender bender. Uh -huh. There was Boy George and there was uh, the kind of pound shop version, Marilyn, if anyone remembers Marilyn. Um, but all, but actually, I never really liked Boy George, and I never really liked Marlon, and it was, and it was nothing to do with their dragginess or their effeminacy. They just didn't sing like Hazel Dean mm. and high energy, and that was the other thing I discovered. I, I discovered my love of high energy before I even knew I was gay. And <laughs> how do you explain that? How do you explain that there's a certain sound? that speaks to you before your sexuality is formed. And it turns out we've all got it in common. Mm. We all heard Donna Summer's I Feel Love. And yes. it wasn't just music. It was yeah. something that is in us. Yeah. And I, I like that Andrew Hay uses music in a way to suggest it's music. It's great. Yeah. But... It's something more than that, mm. which he kind of does a little bit of it. I guess it's a budget issue. Um, the end of weekend ends with the John Grant track, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, but Andrew Haig's interviews, he talks that he secured the rights to the music before making the film, and it was really important for him to to get that music in the movie right? or yeah. filming before casting, before anything. 
that was his his first thing. Can I get the the rights to this music? It tells us how important music is for queer people. Yes, but I want to push you a little bit on this, or you know, just a thought um, as to the film, because the film is so much about the past and dealing with the past. Yeah, in this kind of hazy dream kind of aspect, yeah, kind of, uh, um, and of course it's about a writer, right? So, you know, you're, who's going back, but also inventing. And then the music comes into that overlayered, and music is maybe, you know, the clearest, most direct connection we have to a moment and a mood, yeah? Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, and I wonder what you know what you make of this, yeah. So kind of tying in the music, but also to the film structure and its storytelling, yeah. Because it seems to me the all of these things are very beautifully woven through together. Yeah, and I'm sure we're gonna get like dozens of papers on queer temporality and all of us strangers. You just know that's gonna happen, don't you? <laughs> um, but what that sort of temporality the ghostliness the, the the giving you a fantasy of possibility of what would you, what would you say to your parents now as me 50 50 year old gary what would you go back and say to your dad um it opens up that fantasy possibility for you to yeah. think about what does very empowered, queer, scholarly Gary, what would he go back and say? But at the same time, it's also reminding me constantly that I haven't dealt with the 80s. I haven't dealt with my past. I've merely done a really good job repressing it and building up armour. It's mm. almost like we are Russian dolls mm. and the films slowly taking one doll away, another doll away, another doll away, until it finds us, it finds us, the little kid in us that never quite resolved. Yes. Never quite perfectly repressed. Never quite realised that we still live with a pain and a trauma and that was the power of it for me was that I thought I was this, you know, super tough, political, political, academic, queer, rebellious, like I said at the start. A lot of people have said to me, oh, you're, you're quite intimidating. <laughs> Actually, um, there's a little broken boy inside this shell called Gary. It asks us to do a little bit of psychic time travel to sure. get in touch with a little boy that still hasn't been held. And I think the way the movie ends, the movie hugs you. It's mm. like the movie ends by giving you a hug. It's almost like Andrew Haig knows what he's putting us through, but it, he wants us to also feel some kind of hug. He doesn't leave us 
sort of feeling empty or unloved or unprocessed, but gets us to connect, to think. So it's what the movie's done is got all of us of all generations talking about our childhood, talking about our losses, our connections, talking about affect, mm -hmm. talking about like I am that we thought we had dealt with that and we hadn't. And I mean, I'm I've spent five years now on this book about AIDS and the eighties and American independent cinema in Hollywood. And maybe an unconscious part of me is about using an academic project to work through unresolved pain and hostility and a decade that was the one of the worst in our history. And Andrew Hayes just made me realise that, you know, you're not just writing a book here, Gary, you're actually in a, in a very indirect way processing some of your pain. Sure. And it's taken me 25 years to get to the point where I'm writing about the 1980s in a way that feels that it matters and it's important because what we're seeing also emerge and what this movie fights against is we're having a lot of millennial scholars doing work in HIV, AIDS, queer, queer topics, um, trying to stop us from going on about the 80s. Well, I mean, I, if you if you feel erased by that, kind of let me tell you, I feel much more so because, you know, I am of that generation. I think of, of all of us who were in the gay sock at McGill when I was a student, so few of us live, right? So I think we were precisely that generation, i.e., you know, that... Uh, that really kind of was devastated and decimated and that to all intents and purposes kind of almost doesn't exist as a generation, right? Because we were all affected by HIV, either through death or, you know, through through contacting HIV late enough so that uh, um, uh, it didn't kill you, but nonetheless, it kind of affected all other areas of your life, including energy. Um, so... I feel that kind of uh, very strongly, this erasure of this process. And actually, when you were talking earlier, you know, and you were, I think, a little bit taking it for granted what Section 28 is, and I almost intervened. Could you explain Section 28? Because I'm sure that some of our listeners who are, you know, from North America will not really know what it is. But I'm equally certain that actually a lot of young people won't know what it is anymore. Yeah, so Section 20 or Clause 20 came in, and I don't have the date off the top of my head to fact check it, but it is around that sort of 87, 88 period. And the Thatcher Conservative government, um, the clause was very precise and ambiguous at the same time. It was to prevent the promotion of homosexuality, which was interpreted in different ways. It meant 
suppressing teaching texts in school uh, in high school that might be from gay and lesbian authors. It also meant that councils or anything that received government funding in a particular way could not promote or even present uh, what would be called a homosexual lifestyle in a positive or progressive light. It was not meant to be presented as a healthy alternative. And the problem was, of course, that there was so much ambiguity in it that it just ended up just becoming about censoring everything that mm. had to do with gay and lesbian life and content. Uh, but particularly within education, there was a lot of fear um, around saying anything that it was okay to be gay or lesbian and it got taken to extremes because it was it was it was vague. There, there, there's a recent book that's just come out on it called Outrageous, mm. which I've got on my shelf, but again, can't remember the author, but we can put that in, in our notes, um, which is all about section 28. I was still quite young, so I was aware that there were people protesting and the famous thing in Britain of course is two lesbians managed to go on the evening news and chain themselves to the newscaster's chair and because it was live news it, it happened and I think that's now been quite well documented and those women have given oral histories about it. Jimmy Somerville was one of the faces and Ian McKellen was another face and I remember but not fully quite understanding about section 28 because I was I was still quite young but we're also being told about this thing called AIDS and that it kills gay people and it and because the Thatcher government actually what in tandem with customs and excise uh, prohibited the importation of any material, mostly coming from the US, coming from ACT UP. We didn't know about ACT UP because it was all getting stopped at customs. And all the up-to-date activism and information about HIV was being, all the mail, all the packages that was being sent was being opened by customs and, and destroyed and prevented. But we somehow managed to get bit, bits of it through Channel 4, Gay Times, when it used to be a political magazine and not a lifestyle magazine, uh, had correspondence. We had brilliant scholars like Simon Watney mm. really documenting it. Crucial, really, to a whole generation. And, and Simon Watney is, is a legend mm. in terms of British AIDS scholarship. International, I think. International, and uh, we, I would add to that Thomas Waugh in terms of writing about it in film, and as Douglas Crimp mm. um, would be another person, and Cindy Patton, and all those great men and women who worked together to, to get that information out when both our governments in the US and the UK 
were attempting to control the narrative. And part of that control of the narrative was preventing getting proper HIV AIDS information, but also making sure that the gay and lesbian lifestyle, which should also be always be in quotes, was not seen as a healthy or an alternative lifestyle, but something that really shouldn't exist. Mm. And the this took a long time for this clause, this section 28, to be overturned. And many educators, particularly educators in schools, were afraid that anything they did might contravene this law uh, because it was quite ambiguous. But we can put certainly in the notes more factually accurate information, but it's not an area of research, Section mm. 28. And I was quite young, and a lot of the media that I consumed was not affected by it. Mm. But I'm quite sure my schooling was, but I was unaware of it. I think aside from schooling or the specifics of the law, it goes back, I think, to, um, you know, a, a restriction. I mean, there's a wonderful camp, uh, Bolero, you know, that uh, it's, a, it's a gay cultural thing as well, where, you know, the song called I Am The Forbidden. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, which which obviously makes one luscious and sexy and, you know, transgressive and so on. But of course, you know, there's also all the negative sides of that, which is, which section 28 underlines, right? Which you are you are forbidden, i.e., you shouldn't exist. And if you do exist, you are inferior into the side and under. You're never whole. Yeah. And kind of, you know, if you exist as that, then you should keep it quiet and, you know, outside of the public view. So this kind of, you know, psychological response that so many of us are having to this film is precisely about the reconciliation of that. Yeah, something that is forbidden, then even when it's accepted, is seen as an acceptance idea as not quite being equal to, as being to the side and underneath of. Yeah, as, I, I think what the film does with that is kind of really interesting because it is like a kind of a psychic attack. Yeah, no matter kind of how old you get, you're really kind of, you know, you're still, yeah, a queer. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that means that you're not whole, that you're not a person, that you're not equal. Uh, and I think the film does very interesting things with that because I think the reason for the cross-generational kind of uh, affair, one-night stand, whatever you, you want to call it, uh, but the, the central kind of relationship in the film it's significant that it's cross-generational. And I wonder what you make of that and and how you read that aspect of the film. In terms of between the Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal character. That's right, because they're, they're two different generations, two different experiences. Mm, yeah. One with, one with Section 28, one without. Yeah. yeah. And, well, they do have that little conversation, don't they, about yeah. whether gay or whether queer. And actually... Uh, I'm 50, and my partner, also an academic, is 30. So I'm a, uh, not a millennial. that make him a millennial? I'm always confused about I'm always it, confused. <laughs> all that kind of thing. 
Um, but I, of course, said instantly, you have to go and see it. Mm. And he was quite upset by the film. And also, but he came back to me and said, I can see your pain. Mm. He didn't come back to me and say, I recognize my pain in the movie. He was like, I can see your pain. How interesting. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was also seeing some people of our generation, 50s, 60s, moaning about the movie. Oh, it's the sad young man trope all over again, which, of course, Richard Dyer writes so brilliantly about. And my partner said, and this was the best response, I said, oh, some people are saying it's the sad young man. And he said to me, well, stop fucking making us sad. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I thought that act of resistance is like, of course we're sad young men because you made us sad. Yes. We choose to be sad. And well, I mean, I think the film is brilliant at indicating all the structural reasons why we're sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a, a personal failing or even predilection. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the film shows how the family, the school, the, yeah, create this kind of, you know, loneliness. Yeah. yeah. Inability to get along, as your school report said. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's not individual. It's not only individual. There are all these structural reasons that create this. Right. Uh, and yet, you know, kind of I thought one of the brilliant things about the film and this is kind of counter your boyfriend a little bit, I suppose, is that you see that, you know, Paul Mescal also shares in that pain that is largely constructed through the way that society responds to the homosexual or the queer. Absolutely. And you know what it's also about, I think, Jose, is in conjunction with that sadness or the trauma that has been put upon us and what we've survived is letting people in. Absolutely. And Andrew Haig literalises that in his mise-en-scene in both Weekend and in All of Us Strangers. If you watch the films back to back, you'll notice how much time is spent at the threshold of the doorway in and out of the flat. And weekend, there's a lot of doorway chat about leaving and coming in. And of course, a part of the film, without spoiling it for those who haven't seen it, is about whether Andrew Scott's character can let in Paul Mescal. And by letting in, it means coming into his flat, but also in here. Mm. Can I let you in? Mm. Because part of growing up traumatised, sad, grieving, but angry and rebellious at the same time, is you have to be so careful and choosy about what you let in and what you need to protect yourself from, what you have to push away and exclude. And I think Andrew Haig's really great at sort of getting us to think both in an explicit way through the dialogue, 
oh, I, I can't let you in, not tonight, but also in a, a more existential way of thinking about what we let into ourselves mm. and what we exclude from ourselves and what we protect ourselves from and the power of letting someone in and that transformative power mm. in their relationship is so important to the film. But also, I think, when we see Andrew Scott go back to talk to his younger mother and younger father, he's not letting her homophobia in now. Mm. He's not letting them in in the way that there wasn't that barrier in childhood. You don't have that power to choose, in a way, who you let in and who you exclude. And that whole dialogue with Claire Foy, I thought, was so wonderful because he's still letting her in, though. So she's exhibiting all the prejudices of her class and time in 1987. Um, and he doesn't accept that. And he was, but he's still not rejecting her for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I thought that was also beautifully done. Yeah. That kind of. You know, it's still his mother. She loves him. She'll have to come around to his way of thinking on this. Yeah, but he's letting her do that. He's letting her in yeah. enough so that that transformation becomes possible. I read the ending. Well, not quite the ending, but what leads up to the to the very end of the film as political as well. Yeah, and I read it in the sense that. Uh, the Andrew Haig character has been so absorbed in his own kind of processing of trauma. Not only that he hasn't let the Paul Mescal character in, but that actually he's kind of failed in a responsibility towards him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that to me also then makes it political. Yeah, that there's a responsibility to this younger man. But it's almost like, well, if your parents had taught you what it meant to let someone in and be intimate, and he wouldn't have had that problem. I think for me, it's it's the the parents have made him distant and cold because he's needed to do that to protect himself from their unloving or their homophobia and. Yeah. I, I I agree, but I read it more dialectically. Yeah, that. But let's not forget that the onus is also on us to reach out, not just to yeah. let. It yeah, and out. that's the sadness of the movie is, it, and that's where I suppose it is melodramatic because it plays with a if only clause, mm. doesn't it? That Steve Neil once wrote about melodrama hinges upon the if only you had got to the train station in time. If only you had saw that they turned back and looked at you. Mm. Um, if only that night he had let him in. And that's part of its kind of slightly melodramatic machinations, I suppose. But it's... I think we should also talk as well about not just that the ending and letting him in, but also the way that the film fits into Andrew Hayes' career and also the way that it deals with intimacy because 
I was going to ask you about that. So go uh, ahead. Yeah. So I previously worked on uh, a piece of writing on weekend, comparing it to the French film Theon Hugo with my close friend and scholar, Jeanne Chakala. And we were quite harsh on weekend. And it's investment in the character of Russell and his desire to be settled, monogamous, low-key gay, and the other character of Glenn who wants to be out in the world and explore and be free and and loud. And that sort of dynamic of the men is is mapped onto the formal design of the film, which again uses the, the doorway, the flat, the looking out of the window of the high rise to really anchor us in Russell's point of view which is this desire to be intimate and settled and monogamous. And then, of course, Haig goes on to 45 years and he makes Looking for HBO. Uh, Have you seen Looking? No, there's a few gaps in my Andrew Haig experience, partly because of my previously anti-weekend stands. Mm. But upon seeing all of us strangers, I was like, I get it now. Mm. It's all about attachment. Mm. And this is what me and Sinead talked about. Is like, even going back to his film Before Weekend, which is a documentary about a London sex worker called Greek Pete, which has seemed to have fallen off the radar because it doesn't fit with perhaps the way his authorship is being fashioned as a beacon of British cinema. But that's a kind of fly-in-the-wall documentary of a London sex worker or rent boy. Mm. And his search for attachment and place in the world and belonging, and that's what Weekend's about. It's about attachment and longing. And, of course, that's what Charlotte Rampling is caught up in, Mm. regret and longing and attachment. And, and here we come finally fully to the almost autobiographical um, All of Us Strangers. And it's like, aha, okay, Andrew, we get it now. We understand. And wow, I think the scholarly analysis of Weekend still holds up. I think it does make me reassess what Andrew Haig is trying to do with his work and provide with his work is a deeper understanding of what attachment might be, mm. what longing might be. But in a more academic register about how do you film intimacy? Mm. And one of the things I really liked about the film and going absolutely against all my queer credentials is that the sex scenes were so lo- they were so much about touch mm. and hapticity and how gorgeous Paul Meskel's thighs are. Yes, I and, <laughs> they made an impression on me also. <laughs> yeah, oh, those thighs on Paul Meskel. Yeah. 
Um, and the close-ups and the touch and the tenderness and he even um, it's almost like you might miss it if you don't know what's happening but he, he licks a little bit of cum off his chest and then he, he kisses him mm, I saw that yes. and that in a way if you think about it it's kind of quite bold and outrageous we've seen it in Greg Araki I don't know if people are familiar with the Doom Generation, where the character wanks and he has cum and he goes, mm. and it's a really slurpy scene of someone eating their own cum. Mm. How Andrew Hay manages to sneak a little bit of cum eating and cum kissing into a 15 rated film is in itself <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite genius. I but wanna... it's framed with intimacy, and I think that's what I like about it, and Part of me, of course, loves Theo and Hugo and all it's fucking and it's it's real sex. But actually, there's space for the hapticity of Paul Meskel's thighs to stand in place for the shagging. Yeah. And I really love that about the movie, is that, that sort of approach to intimacy as a, almost a cinematic texture that we don't see often enough in gay cinema. We see it in Claire Denis, we see it in French feminist film, but we don't see it in a gay cinema because we want fucking and we want we want it raw on screen. And Andrew Hay doesn't give us raw, he gives us sensuality. And that was a revelation for me. I, I was just going to say feeling, really, because all of those sex scenes are about feeling, but in a, in a multi-dimensional way, right? So, you know, there's the shyness, right? Kind of, yeah, there's the awkwardness, there's the look, there's the looking, the desire. Yeah, you, you go through kind of, you know, things that seem recognizable, right? Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the bodies are there. There's also, I think, without question, yeah, kind of, you're not seeing mezcal's thighs by accident right yeah. and the way that they're filmed right so yeah so so i kind of i think you do get kind of all of that but really it's kind of a a a, a, a process of feeling you know of changing kind mm -hmm. of emotional kind of states in that situation that i found very affecting because i actually find it even less represented than the sex that one does like so much to see um, in narrative cinema. Because after all, we do have porn for all kinds of sex. It is there and available to us in a way where, you know, this kind of exploration of, you know, uh, uh, states of feeling in a kind of uh, a vulnerable moment, you know, that kind of risks either pleasure or humiliation or distress or joy yeah kind of yeah to all kinds of uh endings uh i find much less represented and thus i very much welcome it absolutely and i think he does a little cheeky thing at the start of the movie where andrew scott is heading back to croydon from central london and he sees a guy in the woods. And of course, 
as I guess spectator, you're like, oh, cruising scene coming yeah. up. But it turns out to be a Yes. And it's almost like Andrew Hay was like, get your mind out of the gutter, Gary. Uh, this is not this, this is not that kind of queer movie. I think I thought that was a really interesting way of uh sort of what it's hard to find a word. I want to say denaturalizing our expectation that every setup like that is a cruising scene when we know the director's gay or the characters are gay. We okay. always expect those short reverse shots, a man in the woods to be a cruising scene or lead to a cruising scene, but actually it's father. And I think it's but you only it's, find that out later. Yeah. It's absolutely it's subversive in a way. Um I, I thought it's interesting because uh the father is a 1970s clone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Filmed that way with the mustache and the shirt, you know, and of course there's all the gazes and so on. So, you know, it's it's absolutely deliberate. And then the director turns the tables on us, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And we all well, know Jamie Bell is hot anyway. Sorry? Uh, everyone thinks Jamie Bell is hot anyway. He's uh, another one of our British star hotties with Paul. <laughs> and just thought. Uh, um, but I think some of the things doing a bit more of a deep dive in the movie, um, Jamie Bell talks a lot about how much he enjoyed being the father, almost like the father to his Billy Elliot mm. in a kind of role reversal. Mm. And we've talked a lot as you know about the gay characters, but I think Claire Foy and Jimmy Bell do such a wonderful job. I mean, it's just an ensemble piece of four people. They're wonderful. Yeah, That's it feels so much particular. more than that. Uh -huh. Apart from the 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 waitress in the sort of place that brings three strawberry sundaes and says something like, how are you going to eat all those? Because we know he's ordering them from the parents that are ghosts. Yeah. But yeah, to to make a film with such a small cast mm -hmm. have such power and resonance. I mean, we're really seeing Andrew Haig blossom in mm. such a way that Weekend was only hinting at. Mm. And I'm so eager to know where that's going. And it almost feels like, well, has he said everything he needs to say about gay cinema, mm. gay life and gay history, his autobiography? But I think he will continue to be obsessed with longing and attachment. That's his that's his thing. Mm. That's it. Attachment. Before we leave off, I I want I want to discuss the film's form with you because I think um it's it's relatively unusual, I think, in British cinema. Yeah, because it it has a, a complex form. It reminded me a lot of After Sun, in fact which was my favorite British film of last year. Yeah, in the sense that it's kind of formally daring and experimental, actually, right? Uh, and yet it does also kind of feel like a traditional 
British realist film, yeah, in terms of the decor and you know, um, and I think it's part of what makes the film so affecting and it works so well, yeah. And I think it also has been a barrier, at least to some people, yeah. And I wonder if you, well, if you agree and if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I think Haig's so aware of mise-en-scene and staging and how much meaning that can carry for things that cannot be said. Because a lot of his movies are about people not being able to articulate how they feel. Mm. So a lot of the weight of that is often carried through the the stylistic elements, the formal elements, the, the the use of pop music as a narrative device or the use of windows and frames and doorways to thematize mm -hmm. letting in or keeping out. And yeah, I mean it's it's hard to know really anymore what what is a British film aesthetic. Mm. And scholars of course debate about the they divide it into the German and the post-German era. And uh, I think Haig also working across in the US with HBO and what the freedoms that that also offers. And of mm -hmm. course, his other TV show that uh, seems like an odd one in his Filmography is the OA, if anyone remembers. It's that one with the angel dance mm. in it. Um, but stylistically, yeah, I think it's it transcends the conventions we expect of a British film. Mm. I mean, while, while not pushing the boundaries of what we might expect from a European art film, it's it, it reminds me a bit of. Lynn, like Lynn Ramsey, yes, and Andrea Arnold. There's a certain pull towards realism. I think in the Decker, but there's also this pull towards something fantastical mm. and transcendent and mm. elative that you just can't get out of a realist film. Yes, and those are ones comparisons i think yes very apt yeah it, it's like lynn ramsey's rat catcher manages to be about the most abject glasgow poverty in the 70s mm. but somehow visually transcends its subject matter and i think that's what haig does this is a very sad film dealing with very painful stuff but yet formally like the camera itself does, it really lifts us up at the end of the movie into a different orbit. Mm. It's the it's the transcendence that Jean-Louis Baudry talks about, really, about the apparatus. Of course, he, he's thinking about how can the, the movie take you out of yourself, out of your body, so you don't even think you're in your body anymore. And I think Andrew Hayes managed to strike that balance between it being very grounded in something real. Mm. AIDS, Section 28, queer pain, queer trauma. But at the same time, there's this textual uplift 
that allows us to, like the camera, come away from it. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the resonance of its power, of its affect, has no consequence. Because no. I didn't leave the movie crying, mm. but the week after was in a perpetual state of devastation and grief. Mm. And that's special, I think, how he manages to 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 balance that mm. those registers that don't seem compatible at first, but somehow he magically makes them work. I think the film is like to me an astonishing achievement because of the narrative fluidity that seems effortless, right? But nonetheless, it's very complex. You are going from a person's state of mind, a writing, something that could possibly be a, a ghost story, yeah, kind of, a, you know, a relationship that could be a fantasy, right? Um, and moving from one to the other, kind of like really completely fluidly, so that it's only at the end that you kind of, you know, begin to put the pieces together and, and you know, think of, you know, kind of what happened. As you're watching it, you're not, I, or I at least wasn't asking any of those questions. You're just kind of going with it, right? And that, I think, to me, is kind of a, an incredible achievement to, for something to be so narratively complex and yet to be such a kind of a fluid viewing experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I wasn't a mess during the movie, but a mess after the movie. And that's a testament to its power to not feel like you're being manipulated in the moment, but being left with residue that mm. sticks. The movie sticks to you. Mm. It, you know, we were talking about intimacy and attachment. It's like the movie has attached itself to me. Mm. And it took me a, a little bit of time to let the movie into me. And mm. it's a major achievement that that a film can do that. Yeah. You know, something as ordinary as a film. Mm. And it caught me off guard as it did many others, because we were going just expecting to see a, a damn good British film. Mm. But what we came out with was a recognition of unprocessed mm. grief and trauma. And, you know, it's not like an AIDS movie, which usually makes me, can make me cry, but makes me angry. Mm. It's doing something that I still think, even in our conversation today, I'm not quite getting to it quite yet. Mm. It's a movie that I'm still processing. Mm. And that process, I think, is going to be ongoing. And it makes me think about what kind of scholarship we're going to see around that movie. And I've, I feel, is it going to damage the movie? I feel protective about the movie. Uh, I, I never feel that. 
I must I, say. I feel a certain protection, but I think, and I am going to do work on the movie, and I feel that how can it not come from a place of autoethnography, which which was sort of more, more or less suggested to me because I don't want to separate myself from its affect mm. on me. I don't want to separate the film from my childhood. I want that to be part of how it gets theorised and presented in a scholarly way because I think we're being forgotten. Mm. There's a lot of contemporary scholarship trying to forget and invalidate some of that pain that this movie brings back. I um I feel, you know, that I look forward to reading all of the uh inevitable kind of scholarship that the film will give rise to. The only thing that's made me angry so far and that I expect will continue to is people who are merely dismissive. And there has been a kind of strand, right? I mean, you can like it or not like it, kind of find it valuable or not find it valuable. But I somehow felt that, you know, to be dismissive of this work was, to put it bluntly, to be stupid, to not actually just recognize its achievements, its formal achievements even, you know, as a work, and certainly almost to be dismissive of a generation. Yeah, yeah. so in both of those things. So, you know, kind of that's the only thing that's put my back up, and which actually was part of what sparked my desire to speak to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as we know, some yeah. scholars of a certain esteem and reputation have um, reacted in quite a hostile manner towards the film, which takes me back to where we kind of began and, and me saying, I discovered John Waters. I wasn't a German queer. I was a Waters queer. And, it, and it's a bit, in some of these scholars who we respect are like uh, Peggy Gravel at the start of John Waters' Desperate Living. <laughs> you know, when she gets a, a wrong phone call and she says, how dare you steal the 30 seconds of my life? <laughs> there's a lot of um, anti-all of us strangers Yes. which is of that variety of how dare you steal two hours of my life mm. with this nonsense, this these sad men and their sad lives and their self-destruction and their drugs and their inability. And uh, I think, you know, as someone who's considers themselves to be quite rebellious, mm. that that how can you ignore this movie? What, what? How can you ignore this movie? Firstly, how can you ignore this movie? Because formally, stylistically, without thinking about its content and its politics, it's a damn good movie. It's beautifully made. It's beautifully crafted. It's cinema at its best. At It's the art of cinema as an art form. But secondly... Yeah, I mean, this is speaking to very important political stuff. 
it's speaking to important psychoanalytic pain and psychic pain, a generational pain, trauma, grief, AIDS, Section 28. It's all in there. It might be subtle. It might be explicit. But dismissing this movie tells me more about you than it does about the movie. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end, Gary. So um, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Jose. Come on.